I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And joining us this week is another thrilling guest, Erin Keefe, pronouns she, her. Erin is a comedian and writer. She co-hosts the podcast Hey Riddle Riddle and sitcom D&D and guests on the podcast Hello from the Magic Tavern. And also, most importantly, she's friends with Coach. Welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like this is sort of take your daughter to work day. That doesn't make much sense because Hannah's not my mother. Oh, okay. Who's the daughter? Coach coach brought me in and I sort of feel uh, that kind of thrill (laughs) of like, this is where she goes. This is amazing. (laughs) This is where she goes. She goes here so often. Shockingly. Yeah. And we're just not going to let her talk on this episode. <laughs> it's killing her. She's punching the air. Her nose is bleeding. She's so upset. Oh, my God. Is her nose bleeding just from rage? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, something Gross. inside of her brain broke, but no time to discuss that because we are here to talk about my all-time favorite musical, which through my, mm, let's say... Uh, healthy and normal listening habits to Aaron's podcast, Hey Riddle Riddle. Um, I might have like accrued a few fun facts about Aaron by listening to 166 hours of her talking back to back. Anyway, Aaron, I understand that you might also like Les Mis. I do. I, I like it a good amount. 
I love it. <laughs> I can go into my love for it very briefly. I want to but... hear. I want to hear about about your relationship with this musical. So I don't remember like hearing it for the first time. It just was on in my house all the time. And I used to, on multiple occasions, have my mom sit down on our living room couch and I would do it from the best of my memory. Like an hour and a half performance for her. And she would sit and endure the <laughs> entire thing. And then when my, Whoa. Yeah, I was like, oh God. Um, <laughs> and then when my sister was a sophomore in high school and I was like fifth grade or something like that, the high school did Les Mis and it was like, the biggest month of my life. I was so excited. And I had my sister come home from her rehearsals where she was a lovely lady. And I had her teach me all of the dances and everything just in case she got sick. I thought they were going <laughs> to call me up. <laughs> and that's how understudies work. Uh, I, my mom would pick me up from school, take me to go watch the rehearsals. I'd army crawl through the back and watch <laughs> them rehearse and I was like just in case someone gets sick I'll be here <laughs> and they no one got sick so I didn't get to go on um because I was a kid but I love it so much there's rules for tiny children yeah I didn't get in any of those sad roles. musical where tiny children die I was so jealous of all the kids the real kids that got to be in the show but I also just saw it recently like a month ago at the tour that came through LA at the Hollywood Pantages and it was excellent so it was top of mind I just, I think it's really important to establish as we go into this episode, Aaron and Hannah, that this is something that is very close and dear to both of your hearts, and I have never seen it. I know of it mainly because of Hannah. I talk about her a lot. <laughs> and also and also because of, like, a lover that I had one time. <laughs> Not <And> me. <laughs> Not Hannah. Not <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> Well, Marcel, it's very Les Mis of you to refer to a lover you had one time. Maybe he came in the night like a tiger. Gross. Mm -hmm. uh, none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> also, yes. <laughs> All right, people. It's time for Why This? Why Now? Where we ask the hard-hitting materialist question... What were, sometimes what are, what are or were the historical, ideological, and material conditions for our object of study to become <clears throat> zeitgeisty? Ooh, zeitgeisty. So, Aaron, you are not the only person who grew up with Les Mis surrounding them. So I knew it was popular, but despite being like a lifelong, literally lifelong fan of this musical, I went into this research with literally zero background on it. Like, I just knew not, I don't know who wrote it. Like, I kind of vaguely remembered their names from the sheet music that mm -hmm. we had when I was a kid, but just no, no context at all. So I learned a ton and I'm going to now make you learn those things that I learned. I'm so excited. I've loved it my whole life, but I've never thought about it, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yes. Never thought same. about it. Yes. Exactly, exactly the same. So I'm going to start by giving us all a bit of context, and then I'm going to dive into what I think are two really key pieces of context. One is the rise of the mega musical, and the other is Thatcherite England. Doesn't that sound fun? Woo! Woo! -hoo! Yes. yes. Yeah! Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> all right. Here's some crucial background. Les Mis, as it is commonly known, is in fact Les Miserables, which is 
a musical adaptation of the 1862 novel by Victor Hugo, which is one of the longest novels ever to be professionally published. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, pick it up in a bookstore sometime. I don't mean buy it. I just mean literally (laughs) pick it up because it is a hilarious brick. (laughs) Yeah. So it's very long and I haven't read it. But it generally, it's like a sort of social cause novel. Like, it's about how the people are downtrodden and should be treated better. Is it a Victorian novel? I think Victorian novels are only English novels because it was Victorian England because of Queen Victoria. That was my subtle way of being like, was Victor Hugo He was French. He was French. (laughs) This novel was written in French. But, like, he's a contemporary kind of of Dickens and, like, the vibe's the same. You know, we've got sort of an Oliver Twist energy in Gavroche, for example. So, like... This is a very, you know, nice middle class man writing a book about how sad it is when people are poor. A lot of critics have suggested that Marius is the kind of like Victor Hugo figure in the novel. And so for those who know the musical, you will know um, that Marius is the sort of boring romantic lead who doesn't die. (laughs) (laughs) Great. A great way to insert yourself into a narrative. Anyway, much more excitingly for our purposes, because I've never read the novel and I won't too long. Very boring seeming. In 1980, this French duo, Claude-Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boublil, turned Les Mis into a concept album. I... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so they didn't stage it originally as a musical. They just wrote all the songs and released it as a concept album. Okay. So it was a French musical theater concept album adaptation of a 19th century French novel. I'm trying to limit the amount of times I say, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. This episode. No, you should say that <laughs> over and over It's going to be scary um, how many times <laughs> I say it, so I'm just going to cover my mouth every time I want to say it. <laughs> At a certain point, Coach will probably turn it into a sound effect and then just bing. Coach, love to learn. Love to learn about what you do around here. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so these guys made it into a musical. They They eventually staged it in Paris, but it became sort of the the major cultural touchstone it is now when in 1985 British theater owner Cameron Mackintosh launched the English adaptation in London. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Karen, did you know? No, I didn't know. I didn't and know then it. they also had to because like the the French version assumed an audience profoundly familiar with like the events of 1832. Yes. And like yeah. the student rebellions. And so they also, for an English audience, had to write like a ton more framing material. So it took what had been like maybe, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, and turned it into originally a three and a half hour musical that they eventually oh. got down to three hours, but it is still a solid three hours. Wow. Wow. Not long enough. When you're on that ride, baby, you never want it to end. No. When I heard that there was a three and a half hour version, I was like, where do I get it? How do I yeah. have it? Can I have it now? I want it now. Is there a six hour version? Can I have that one? hundred percent. I feel the same way. And because everybody feels the same way that Aaron and I do, it is the longest running musical in London's West End. It has been performed since 1985 over 14,000 times 
just on the West End. That is not including touring, Broadway adaptations, school productions, which we will get into because school productions are actually a really key part of the context. Ooh. Erin. I, I didn't know that. Erin, <laughs> did you know that? I did not know that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Incredible. <laughs> I've only been here for 20 minutes of an episode, and I already have a catchphrase. I'm very proud of myself. Cannot That's cannot how you ensure it. that we bring you back. Yep. Have a catchphrase. Part of it. One of us. <laughs> okay. So so this this musical, this is huge. huge. This is a huge deal. Huge. Okay. Huge. Okay. One of the hugest. I feel like there are other musicals that are also really big. Yeah. Is this like part of a trend? Is there like Oh my god, my so what a great question. Is it? Oh my is god. It, am I asking the right oh questions? my god, it's like it's part of this trend that happened in the 1980s of the emergence of the mega musical. Ooh, what's a mega musical? Aaron, I know that mm-hmm. you are more generally a musical theater fan. Can you guess what some of the other major don't read the script. Can you guess what some of the other <laughs> major 1980s mega musicals were um let's see cat was cat 70s cats falls into this this i'm saying night you know it's the long 1980s so like the yes. late 70s early 90s so yes cats absolutely i'm trying to think of cameron mackintosh stuff so it would be, oh phantom of the opera of course phantom of the opera for sure wow yeah you're so good at this Aaron. Thank those are you. those are the other two really huge ones of the period jesus christ superstar sort of launched the movement but Les Mis, Cats, and Phantom are usually held up as like the the trio of mega musicals mm-hmm. so good job Aaron thank you <laughs> well, Aaron great <laughs> work Thanks. you did know that I did know it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so things that characterize the mega musical as a genre They're huge spectacles, so they usually have quite elaborate staging, elaborate costumes, really big casts, so that it feels like you're going to something like huge and over the top and magnificent. And if it's cats, they have really huge cats. Yeah, yeah, huge, huge cast. Thanks for laughing at my joke, Erin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hannah doesn't think I'm funny anymore. She's sick of my shit. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. It's a spectacle. Big shit. It's a spectacle. Big shit. Big cats. Big cast. They are, this was something I didn't know and I find so cool. They are fully sung through. Is like a characteristic of the mega musical. So they don't have any spoken dialogue. They sing the entire time. Oh. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting because that operas do the same thing too. But what is the differentiator between why you call something an opera versus? Oh my God, Aaron, such a good <laughs> question. A lot of scholars of the mega musical point out how much it owes to opera, that it is basically a modern adaptation of opera, sung through super melodramatic, big casts with big choruses. A lot of use of like recurring musical motifs to like bring you back, like, oh, when this character comes out, we always hear this music. So, like, it's structurally, mega musicals owe a lot more to opera than they do to more conventional musical theater. Can I ask a question? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Is the mega musical like 
middle class opera. Yeah. Mm. Yes. I love class-based analysis. <laughs> Mega musicals are operas for people who don't want to go and listen to somebody sing Italian for three hours because it's like hard and you don't understand the Italian. That's right. And sometimes they have subtitles and you like can't when you're watching the subtitles, you can't see what's happening on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. So this the fact that mega musicals are like huge budget, melodramatic and like directly aimed at people who like don't want to go to like who want something that's entertaining and accessible. They are often uh, derided by like musical theater critics. Like when Les Mis came out, it was absolutely panned by like the theater review elite. Um it's referred to sometimes as mick theater because like a big part of the idea of the mega musical is that it can be staged kind of anywhere and staged in the same way and that's you know like mcdonald's like oh you go to mcdonald's anywhere in the world and it's mm. the same and it's it's explicitly a commercial art form like it exists to like they cost a lot to put on so you have to make money doing it and you know how artists feel about making money Oh, they famously hate making yeah. money. <laughs> they love to be hungry. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing them a favor by not paying them. They love it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if we give artists money, then they will have sold out and their art won't be good anymore. Amen. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So Coach. what? <laughs> Coach, Coach agrees. Um, Coach Coach, Coach just, you guys can't see this because, Co you know, because Coach is, is muted. But um, Coach just nodded enthusiastically and gave two huge thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, right, huge spectacle needs to make money. So a big part of what characterizes the mega musical is also the investment in marketing strategies. I found somebody was pointing out that, like, Cameron McIntosh was really good at finding a single iconic image to associate with his musicals because these musicals were the first ones to have like widespread merch. I can picture the Phantom one. Uh -huh. What's the Phantom one? The, fa the Phantom Mask. Yeah. Aaron, what's the cat's one? The Cat Eyes. Yeah. And for Les Mis? It's Cosette. Young Cosette. Yeah. And the flag, the French flag, and she's going like this. You can't see me, but I'm doing such a good impression. <laughs> Kirk, can we see that one more time? Yeah? Oh, my God. Wow. Impeccable. Erin, you knew. I knew. You knew it. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, which is actually, like, adapted from a, like, 1860s woodcut, like, from, from Hugo's own time period. Like, that is, a you know, an image of Cosette from illustrated versions of the book that they just took and then superimposed the colors of a French flag over it. And we're like, everybody wants a sweatshirt with a starving child on it, right? <laughs> we do! <laughs> we did. It turns out we did. Hmm. So funny. So I've got a quote here from musical theater scholar Jessica Sternfeld that, Aaron, I would love if you would read for us um, and make sure that you say quote and end quote around it. Otherwise, you're going to get in trouble with Coach. Quote, and perhaps most significantly, the marketing that accompanies a mega musical around the world makes it an easy commodity to sell. The logo, theme song and slogan seek to assure a foreign audience that it gets exactly what was produced on Broadway. End quote. 
Mm. Oh, beautifully done. Absolutely Thank perfect. You. Ooh, first try. Incredible. First try. First try. Nailed it. Yeah. So so that's a big part of the mega musical is the idea that like no matter where you see it, you're getting like the Les Mis experience. But Cameron McIntosh also came up with this really smart idea where he was like, okay, I'm going to be really controlling about the licensing for professional productions. Like, Professional productions, I will have total control over. They will all look the same. They will all sound the same. They will feel like you're having the Les Mis experience. But I'm going to do a lot of licensing for school productions and at-home sheet music. So quite early on, people started being able to play and sing the songs at home and perform them in their schools. Erin, did you know? Did not know. I did not know that. <laughs> Your experience was like exactly the experience he was trying to produce, which is one where like, even if you've never seen it, like actually gotten to go and see the spectacle of the musical, you end up with this like intimate domestic relationship to it because you've sung it at home maybe seen your older sister perform it in a high school production. Um, so, it, so it embeds itself in, like, the texture of your life. Cameron McIntosh manipulated me again! <laughs> again. God, this guy's... God, damn it. I fell for it again. <laughs> Making me like 80s musicals. Damn yeah, it. yeah. We Listen, we've all gotten Ooh. fucked over by Cameron McIntosh. <laughs> you don't, don't feel alone. <laughs> Personally victimized by Cameron McIntosh. (laughs) Well, that's new merch. (laughs) Okay, very briefly, I want to give you the other context, which is about what was happening in England in 1985 when this musical was first staged. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Thatcher. Thatcher? Was Thatcher Thatcher was happening. Yeah. Marcel, what do you know about Margaret Thatcher? I know that she was described as the Iron Lady Mm. um, because she was so immovable. She had no visible feelings and she (laughs) had like this, this like iron grip around the necks of the working class in, uh, in England at the time. So she was all about deregulation and she was all about uh, people got to pull their damn selves up by their bootstraps. No social handouts, not for you. Yeah, no, no. She was like a union busting, working class, hating, like pro policing of racialized communities, like real, just a real shitty conservative politician. And I heard she was also a little afraid of the queen (laughs) and their meetings, which makes me feel happy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, find me somebody who's not a little afraid of QE2. That lady was unreadable yeah (laughs) Mm. so we can link many people have linked this thatcherite period to what was actually happening in the theater because she was a huge fan of deregulation and intriguingly in 1985 when les mis was staged in the west end it was co-produced by the royal shakespeare company whoa and originally staged like at the rsc's theater which I think was the Barbican. So this upset people for a couple of reasons. One, the Royal Shakespeare Company is like, or was a a publicly funded arts organization that was about a sort of understanding of theater as being for like public improvement. 
which is how we're all fed our daily dose of Shakespeare, right? Like, it's good for gotcha. you. Take your Shakespeare medicine. Everybody read it in school. <laughs> Everybody go see it. It makes you smarter and better. So there's this sense of, like, the Royal Shakespeare Company is producing art that improves people. And it absolutely outraged people that the Royal Shakespeare Company was getting in bed with a mega musical. But, mm. like, it makes sense when you think about the defunding of public infrastructure, the deregulation of industries at the time. So so the Royal Shakespeare Company was co-producing Les Mis as a as a way of sort of making money. recouping yeah. some of some of the money that Thatcher uh, drained from their coffers. It seems to be the case. Yeah. And Thatcher actually used Andrew Lloyd Webber as her excuse for underfunding national theater, that whenever people were like, you're destroying British culture. We don't have a national theater anymore because you've gutted all of the funding from the arts. And she would be like, look at Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> and he's just swimming in a pool of his money <laughs> that he made off of cats. <laughs> <laughs> he's okay. Look at him. Yeah, he's doing great. So this system works. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay. So what I find really interesting, and this is going to this is going to segue us into our next segment. What I found really interesting as I was trying to think about Les Mis was thinking about a musical that is about the crushing of the working class by the elite and the way the government like doesn't give a fuck about poor people and is happy to murder them in the streets, which is what happens in Les Mis. Spoilers. And thinking about that musical being staged as a mega musical in a deregulated theater landscape explicitly as a way of making money in a period when there were literally like the 1980s were a period of like mass uprisings in England, both huge strikes like unions were really trying to fight against Thatcher, but also it was a period of a lot of like street-based protests by racialized communities against police violence. So like literally while Les Mis was being staged as this like huge middle-class spectacle in the theater, like people were building barricades on the streets. So what do we do with that? Is what we do with that maybe... Okay, no, sorry. You go ahead. You go ahead. In my research, I just came across endless condemnations of Les Mis as, like, corporate culture at its worst, the paradigmatic musical of Thatcherite Britain, you know, an unregulated free market success with corporate sponsorships and merchandising and bombast and protests being sold to white people while actual protest was happening on the street. Like, this is the way critics talk about Les Mis. Okay, so there's like a, a a mega disconnect between the people involved in the production who see it one way, and then and then the people who are who are going to see it and reviewing it critically. No, right? there's no. a mega mismatch no. between the like scholars who are talking about this musical and attempting to frame its significance, and nobody has talked about. Though, like, who's left out when we talk about critics of the time, people involved in the production, scholars who are reading it in retrospect? Who have we totally left out of that equation? The audience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A plus, Aaron. <laughs> Yay. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> the fucking audience. The literally hundreds of millions of people who have seen this musical. 
who probably didn't see it and go and at the end go, I really like Margaret Thatcher. When we picked Les Mis to talk about something that I was thinking a lot about uh, is now that I'm like actually trying to be critical about the musical rather than just letting my id take over when I listen to it. Um is that it sort of feels like it's playing both sides sometimes as an audience member. I think like there's a song in the end of the show called Empty Chairs and Empty Tables. And basically the thesis of that song is like, I don't know what your sacrifice was for. Protesting, I guess, is actually kind of useless. So it feels like you're you're playing for blood laughs from people who do think that protesting is useless and doesn't have a space. And then also you're pulling at the heartstrings of the people who do think it. It definitely doesn't feel when you're watching it or listening to it that it lands on either side fully. Yeah, Aaron, you're getting at this like really sort of weird indeterminacy within Les Mis where it's like, okay, it's really corporate. It's really like aligned with a lot of conservative values in how it was staged. And also it is a musical about like the people, like people not being slaves again, but also all the protesters in the musical do die. Yeah. And at the end, they are all ghosts singing about how that protest didn't work out great. So it's tricky to like really assign a politics to the musical itself. And in my search to find like a critical way of really understanding how, uh, you know, potentially problematic Les Mis is and squaring that with my own like deep love of it, um, I found a, I found a book. I found a really good book that I would like to tell you about. Can't wait. It's time for the segment, The Theory We Need. And, you know, sometimes the right piece of scholarly writing just comes along at the right time and gives you exactly the tools you need to understand something better. And lucky for me, I came across Sarah Whitfield's 2019 book, Bubliel and Schoenberg's Les Miserables, which is, she is a, like, musical theater scholar. And this is part of... A quite cool little uh, series that Rutledge does called The Fourth Wall, which are like short, lively, engaging scholarly texts about famous plays. Great name. Great title. Great series title. Great series title. I mean, this book slapped. I am like, maybe I should go read the rest of the books in the series. Who knows? I think I'm going to write an email to Sarah Whitfield telling her that I really (laughs) liked her book. (laughs) But the book basically asks the question... What have critics of musical theater thus far failed to understand about Les Miserables and its cultural role? Like, if everybody's like, ugh, mega musical, and then hundreds of millions of people are like, I love this musical with every part of, with every part of my heart. It's forever <laughs> embedded in my DNA. Um, then how do we square that? How do we square that particularly if we're not willing to be like, well, listen, mainstream musical theater goers are just stupid. Okay, so Hannah, instead of like recording the rest of this episode, do you want to, are you going to read the book to us? Yeah, I'm just going to read this entire book out loud to you. No, I wish. I actually don't want to spoil it entirely because it's really good and I actually think you should (laughs) all just go read it. It's very short. I've never heard of a scholarly text that could be spoiled. That's (laughs) amazing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a real twist ending. You wouldn't believe it. It's just like she does these, she's got these like, ha ha, you think this, but in fact, like it's got twists. It's really good. And it's like 70 pages. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. Really. Love that song. Really. <laughs> really perfect. I'm going to make you read a couple of quotes from it. But in order to frame it a little bit more, I do want to talk about it as an example of the encoding slash decoding model of communication in practice. Now, Erin, did you know this? I didn't know any of those words. Okay. okay. That's okay. I didn't, yeah. know, I didn't know that. It is okay. <laughs> it is okay. Yeah. It's actually great because now I can tell you about it. Woohoo! <laughs> So, Aaron, tell me, does Les Mis make you feel numb and distracted? I hope not. <laughs> no. <laughs> How does Maybe. it make you feel? How do you feel when you listen to the musical? Or, or sing? How do you feel when you sing the musical? I honestly, I think I do feel a little numb to some of the overall messages in it. I think that I definitely don't feel numb to like the interpersonal relationships in it and that emotion. But I think overall, my big takeaway is not like class consciousness. Oh, what 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 would you say your big is your big takeaway emotional? Yeah, I think because of how sweeping the music is and how uh, big it is, I don't feel insulted as an audience member when I watch it. And I just think some of the interpersonal relationships are very sweet and good in it. Yeah. So there's like a real contradiction there to be like, cool. So we're, we're feeling deeply when we're engaging with this art is feeling deeply the opposite of politics. Does feeling deeply about something distract us from the things that matter? Or is it possible that feeling deeply about things actually, like, primes us to, like, engage more seriously with some issues? That's that's part of what Sarah Whitfield is grappling with, essentially. I gotta read this book. You're blowing <laughs> my only, mind over it's here. Only, it's only 70 pages. <laughs> Holy smokes. So... It's that divide between what theorists have told us mass culture does and what we actually like viscerally experience when we consume mass culture that famed cultural studies scholar Stuart Hall was attempting to explain in his encoding and decoding theory of communication. So I'm going to keep this really brief. Essentially, he acknowledged that there are often conservative messages embedded in mass culture by those in power. But he argued that audiences demonstrate our capacity to produce interpretations that are often deeply contrary to what those encoded meanings are. Basically, like we are not these like empty receptacles for the meaning of culture imposed on us by the ruling class. Like we're actually like smart people engaged in our own complex communities that have their own interpretations that put culture to use in our own ways. So we can't just assume that because something came in with a conservative encoded message, that that means that it's decoded in exactly that same way. Mm. Right. So it is possible for somebody to watch something with a an encoded conservative message, but to decode it in a radical and unexpected way? Absolutely. Like, we see this in the way that minoritized communities embrace, like, cultural icons that, like, were not intended for those communities, but that, like, people then turn around and are like, ah, Ursula the Sea Witch. In fact, a queer icon. Hero. The mm. hero we all mm -hmm. needed. <laughs> Okay, okay. Dolly Parton, queer icon. Yeah, that like we we take things up or, or you know, a, a a colleague of mine at SFU, Carmen Cray, 
is an Indigenous scholar who studies how attached indigenous a lot of indigenous audiences are to dances with wolves whoa which is like a straight up kind of terrible like pro colonizer movie but was like the only representation of indigeneity that was available in popular culture and so holds a really important place for a lot of audiences like we just can't assume that we know in advance what audiences are going to do with things i did not know that but here's something that i didn't know and I'm going to guess, Aaron, that you didn't know. And I am going to guess even more powerfully, Marcel, that you didn't know, which is that there is a significant queer Les Mis fandom on Tumblr. Mm, I didn't love, know. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Like, love that. Yeah. You guys hear me typing <laughs> manically. <laughs> well, I actually am going to need you to look up the ship known as Angelterre, which is the ship of Enjolras and Grantaire. Enjolras is like the noble, like the leader of the students in the protest, like the noble one who like really believes in Grant in in the cause. And Grantaire is like the funny drunk guy who's like, whoa, protest, wild guys, let's have more drinks. And like the youth, the youth ship them. The youth write like alternate universe fan fiction where they're like both university students in the modern day and like meet at a coffee shop and fall in love i'm seeing a lot of good fan art yeah i'm seeing i'm going there's a lot I'm of going. good stuff on the internet turns out <laughs> it's not all bad <laughs> it's when i see stuff like this that i'm like hey the internet's okay yeah, yeah. look at these two handsome lads kissing i love Just that some lads doing smooches yeah. not dying not dying no. just having a little having a little kiss yeah yeah um so coach is filling the chat with horny fan fiction it's absolutely absolutely out of control in here you kind of gotta wonder why it was so readily at her fingertips yeah. like is she the producer of some of this fanfic is yeah. what i coach was that bookmarked <laughs> bookmarked on you <laughs> <laughs> just a file of art that she's been tinkering well, with over the last decade yeah it's taking her oh, time because fast. she's quickly uploading it to tumblr <laughs> <laughs> so sarah whitfield's book emerges from the premise that if we only think about the context of production and not about the communities of interpretation for les mis then we miss out on something really crucial about it which is the role that it plays in people's lives like army crawling through the backstage of a high school production in case maybe they need an extra cosette. You can't prove it. <laughs> Just in case. Just, Just in case. case. <laughs> oh, oh, Aaron, bad news for you. We've been recording this whole conversation. Oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> so... Whitfield acknowledges that a lot of the early reviews were just like straight up snobbery, but also that scholars have a tendency to focus on stuff like the history of the mega musical as, you know, like corporate culture. But she decided to talk to people about Les Mis Whoa. and what it means to them. She talked to 350 fans of Les what? Mis. Um, and she said... <laughs> Basically, none of them were interested in, like, the idea of the mega musical. Erin, actually, could you could you read this this quote from Sarah Whitfield about what they what the fans were not interested in? 
quote, in all of the responses I received, the spectacular staging of the musical and the experience of seeing it live in the theater was not the main memory that people shared. It often hardly featured. The musical was only described as a mega musical once in all of the responses. Thinking about the musical, though, through the lens of the mega musical has been the major way in which academics, including myself, have approached the musical. So what else is going on here? End quote. So reading Sarah Whitfield's book was like hilariously like reenacting my own research process. So like I started with like learning about the mega musical and being like, oh, fascinating. Oh, Thatcher, of course. Oh, protests in the street. And like arrived basically at the same conclusion of like, oh, shit, I guess this musical is like kind of problematic and like it's kind of bad to like it. But like, that's weird because like I really love it and it really matters a lot to me. And none of the things that matter about it to me as a person who loves it have like shown up in any of the scholarship. What do I do with that? Hmm. What do you do, Hannah? What do you do? What do what do I do? Well, I go to Sarah Whitfield and I and I see, you know, some of the the themes that emerge. So intriguingly, the first major theme that emerged was people talk about first encountering the musical through family members. Mm. Like, oh. Aaron, your opening of how you encountered this couldn't have been more perfect if it had been scripted. It wasn't. It's true. It wasn't. <laughs> it, was just, it was just spontaneous and true. And guess what? Me too. I also listened to this because my mom had the recording and loved it and played it for me. So because my mom didn't have the recording and didn't love it herself, that explains why I never even heard about it until I met you, Hannah. Yeah. Yeah. We basically all found like our generation family missed through our parents. So it's genetic, you're saying. <laughs> it's, it's nurture. No, it's nature. It's nature. I don't believe it's in nurture. nurture. It's in your blood. I only believe in nature. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the case for Aaron. It's the case for me. It's, a case, it's the case for a lot of the people that Whitfield interviewed. Is it, is it the case for Whitfield? It's the case for Whitfield. So she talks a lot about the fact that she found this musical through how much her dad loved it. And her dad was a prison warden. Whoa. What? Which is, Marcel, the basically the profession of one of the major antagonist in the musical. Twist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's stranger than fiction. That's crazy. It's incredible. And part of what makes this book kind of remarkable is that right at the beginning, she's like, yeah, so like I was really trying to understand and, and talk to people who the musical meant a lot to. And then as I was right in the middle of the process of drafting this book, I found out that my dad's cancer had become terminal. And her dad died while she was writing oh. this book about what Les Mis means to people. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Marcel, I'm going to ask you to read a really sad quote from this book. And I'm going to give people a content warning for listeners. This quote is about parental death. We are not going to spend the rest of the episode talking about parental death. Um, but I think that this quote does an incredible job of getting at the role that seemingly schmaltzy musical theater can play in our own lives. And so if you don't want to hear this just skip forward to the next segment. It will only be a few more minutes that we're going to hang out in theory land. Quote, the thing is, death isn't really like a musical. And I don't remember what my dad's last words were. 
I don't think anyone really speaks out dramatic epilogues to their children or that children beg their father not to die. We just think it. We think it all really, really hard, loudly into the silence, and do things that aren't quite that. We think this is too soon, while we field phone calls to distant relatives and don't speak about all the awful things that are happening. We think, don't die, Dad, as hard as we can, and we don't say anything. We shuffle pillows and arrange blankets instead. Life makes us carry the silences, and something about the musical, especially this musical, means we can hear a version where we might have sung. Oh my God, oh, I'm crying. Coach is out. Coach is, coach is done. Hannah's done. Aaron is done. I'm the only cold-hearted bitch That's why left I made you in it. this recording. <laughs> That's the reason Coach is crying. Coach is because is crying I didn't say you'll end quote. never say end quote. <laughs> end quote. Oh my God. The fuck is this place? Where am I? <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Welcome, Aaron. <laughs> Now it's time to talk about parental death. I'm going to copy and paste that quote into my little quote collection. I'll see you guys later. Ooh, That line, we can hear a version where we might have sung. I, my mom was dying. Like, I played I Dreamed a Dream so much. That's Fontaine's song about how her life that she thought was going to turn out well really turned out to be hard and miserable and to lead to a young death that was going to take her away from her beloved daughter. So you can imagine I would play this song and my mom and I would cry. And the role that that plays in my life and the the function it has as a work of art in my life is just not something that it makes sense to me to then turn around and be like, oh, but it was corporate. So guess that deep personal meaning is irrelevant because like, a capitalism happened. The more you talk about it, I just I keep having this image in my brain of like, you know, when you buy a kid a toy and they don't play with the toy, they play with the box. Like, I feel like we're playing with the box. Yes. Yes. That is such a perfect metaphor for like the encoding and decoding model of communication is like you you've designed a thing to be used in a particular way but then you give it to people and they're like psych i'm weird yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm dying over here i love whitfield's reading of lame is and i also don't want to lose sight of those crucial contexts of production i think Knowing what audiences think of a musical is really important. And also the point of the encoding and decoding model of communication, as Hall theorized it, is that we have to pay attention to both parts. Do you have a thesis cooking? I just might. <laughs> I can smell it in the oven. I feel like it's almost done. Mm, <laughs> it's bacon. Not bacon. Baking. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, people, it's time. This is the segment in this essay I will. Hannah, we are ready to hear what you've cooked up. Okay, here we go. The mass popularity of the musical Les Miserables provides us with an ideal case study for thinking through Stuart Hall's encoding-slash-decoding model of communication. As a paradigmatic example of the mega-musical, Les Mis encourages us to think about contexts of production, including the runaway free-market capitalism of Thatcherite England. But... Its enormous commercial success means that literally hundreds of millions of people have seen or heard it, resulting in multiple communities of interpretation. Further, Cameron McIntosh's innovative approach to merchandising and licensing the musical led to it being embedded in the domestic and familial lives of many fans, meaning our experiences of it are often deeply personal. In this essay, I will argue that it does that mean that we get to talk about the musical can we talk about the musical <laughs> yeah 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 that's exactly what it means Aaron. i want to go back to your point about like you feel engaged in the personal relationships and and you don't feel like the musical engages in engages us that much in the politics can you talk a little bit more about that yeah i think a few things i think that um musical theater for way longer than maybe any other artistic medium has been writing well for women for a long time and showing a lot of different kinds of interpersonal relationships and women taking up space and women being villains. There was just, they were just ahead of the curb in that way. And I think the amount of complex women in it and relationships between the women and romantic relationships that they're involved in felt so refreshing and I felt very seen in it like Eponine feeling like sort of left behind in her life and being lonely um I felt like I really loved and I also loved how funny Madame Thenardier was growing up like that struck something in me honestly master of the house is like the ultimate diss track it's awesome it's incredible she has one part at the end and she steals it it's the best Marcel, it's this song where the Tenardiers are, are innkeepers. They're the ones who are raising Cosette, the little waif child, and treating her very, very badly. They're like, they're like shitty, shitty, shitty guys. And Tenardier has this like big bombastic number called Master of the House about how he runs his inn. And then Madame Tenardier comes in at the end with the final verse and like does a basically like diss track against him. Comforter philosopher and lifelong shit. Mm-hmm. It's the Tiny best. little brain, regular Voltaire, thinks he's quite a lover, but there's not much there. There's a part in the musical that I always joked that I could teach a college class on like this 15 second part of the song Red and Black, which is like sort of at the end of the first act where Marius, who has just experienced love at first sight with someone, is walking into this like protester meeting, organizing meeting. And I it drives me crazy when people like, say they're having fun or say they're funny and that there's intimacy and some musicals fall into the trap of just doing that but there's this one moment where all these men are being super 
mischievous and jokey with each other and you sense the like boyhood and the intimacy between them and that's the part of the musical that maybe makes me cry the most and it's not like the cracked open I dreamed a dream it's like these boys being so playful and teasing each other knowing you're careening towards all of them being gone soon and it's like it's so brutal and the music there is so like wistful and lovely and then by the end of the song it's very sobering that they like that part of their lives is over but it's choices like that that they're not like and we're good friends and we love each other they're actually teasing like how humans tease and that's what makes you feel cracked open to these boys yeah that you watch them be silly i am a gog i'm a ghast as marius in love at last that's the part oh yep i know i know Ugh. we've never seen him Ooh, and ah it's Ugh. so funny it's so good <laughs> oh it's so good <laughs> i am a gog i am a ghast is maria seen love at last i've never seen him Ooh, and ah <laughs> You talk of battles to be won, and here he comes like Don Juan. It's better than an opera. I think that piece of like, there's really great roles for women, really like one of the uh, one of the points that sort of one of the themes that Whitfield found in her interviews was that people will have particular characters in the musical who they really, really identify with at different stages in their lives and that that will shift over time because the characters are like powerful types who are also accompanied by like really, really powerful, emotionally evocative melodies. Like people have their own sort of recurring melodic themes and it's like oh I come back like this is the Fontaine theme this is the Eponine theme and so there will be these like figures like there's a lot of capacity for like powerful emotional identification so like for a lot of young women Eponine for sure who is the the one who Marius doesn't choose because he falls in love with Cosette and she has that that classic song on my own about walking the streets of Paris alone, imagining that he loves her. And he doesn't. And spoiler alert, she also does. <gasps> That's a very sad song. <laughs> the uh, a, a thing in musical theater that I fall for every time is when people reuse a theme that was happy before in a oh, sad context. Yeah. And Les Mis does this so beautifully. I think, and this, I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this, I'm going to say it. I think my favorite character is Gavroche, who plays such a small role. He's like a little, the Oliver Twist, spunky little boy. And spoiler alert, he dies. But um, <laughs> he... Guys, you got to understand, almost everybody dies. Every Yeah, it's horrible. But the, he, it's not in every production, but he has a song where it's my favorite kind of musical theater song where someone's like, even though I'm small, I can stick up to the big guy. I can help even though I'm little. There's actually a shit ton of songs in musical theater where that is the lyrics. But he <laughs> it's such a fun and happy melody. And instead of when he's dying, picking a sad, wistful memory uh, melody from the show, they just have him use the exact same lyrics and melody 
of when he's collecting bullets and getting shot that he did when he talked about how much he wanted to be helpful and happy. So it's just this horrible feeling. And that's like well, how a kid would be. They would still be a kid. They wouldn't have as complex of a theme of grief and like knowing how much they're missing as like I dreamed a dream would have. And that's even more tragic to go like, oh, and he has he's singing like a little kid earworm while he's dying is brutal. And little people know when little people fight. We may look easy pickings, but we got some bite. So never kick the dog because he's just a pup. We'll fight like 20 armies and we won't give up. So you'd better run for cover when the pup goes up. Absolutely brutal. And a lot of the power of the musical is the way that it reuses those those same melodies in different ways. And I've been thinking about the final scene. So the act one ends with Red and Black, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it ends with, um, do you hear the people sing? Um, or One yes. Day More? No, yeah, it's Does one it of end? those. Yeah, but like there's a major, one of the major songs is... Do you hear the people saying, singing the songs of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. It's like the the rallying cry for the sort of protest. Like we've been watching how people are are crushed by these systems through the whole first half of the musical. We watched Fontaine die. We watched like all of these terrible things happen. And then we've got these students being like, no, we are not going to allow this to be the case. We are we are going to stand together and it's musically so powerful there's a lot of like singing in sync like people are just all singing the melody together and it's a really sort of like almost militaristic like rhythmic song that like really gets you like oh And then that song reprises at the end, but it's being sung by all of these characters who are dead now. And they sing the same melody, but like in a sort of slower, softer way. They sing, do you hear the people sing? Um, Lost in the valley of the night, it is the music of a people who are climbing for the light. Do you hear the people sing? Lost in the valley of the night, it is the music. Like, if we literally interpreted the message, it would be like, cool, there's no justice to be found while we're alive. The only redemption is in death when you get to go to heaven. But what it actually does to you, the listener, for me at least, I mean, we're talking about (laughs) reader response and decoding, like, I will say what it does for me, what it did for me as a listener was leave me with that idea of people needing to work together to become free as the final message of the musical. That like you watched everybody die. The protest failed. But that message is what endures the sense that like we will try again. We will keep trying. Tomorrow will come and we will keep doing this. Are either of you familiar with the musical Hades Town? I'm going to see it in Van- in Vancouver in a couple of months. Oh, I'm amazing. really excited. Um, I, I I can't really spoil a myth that's been around for 2,000 years. But yeah. <laughs> the way that they structure it is it reminded me so much of Les Mis when I first saw it of like, yes, this is so sad and so bad, but we're actually going to tell it again. 
like they reset for the beginning of the musical at the end of the musical, knowing that he's going to turn around again of like, but you know what? That's what this is, is we know that there is no justice and we know that people die and it's unfair, but actually we're going to do it again, begin again. And it's so hopeful. And yeah, I thought I was like, that feels like a direct stealing and, and being inspired by Les Mis. Cause at the end of that, you're like, yeah, like, cause that in empty chairs and empty tables, when he goes, uh, my friends don't ask me what your sacrifice was for. It, yeah. it feels Marius like he can't answer it. He can't answer it. And it feels so sour. But that last bit is like, we'll roll it back again. Start, start it again. <laughs> so how do we reconcile this politically disappointing conclusion with the way that the two of you are describing the feeling and and the and the emotional resonance that you have with these characters. What do we do? <laughs> is it possible that politics is more complicated? <laughs> it's possible. Here's the wild thing. It's possible feelings have a role in our politics. <gasps> <laughs> it's possible that, like, say, look at a whole generation who, like, grew up hearing this musical in our homes, singing it for our parents, putting on productions at home, you know, just familiar with this this vocabulary of feeling and affect and politics that, like, maybe it played a role in our sense of the world as a place that is unjust that we need to do something about. Like, maybe just that basic understanding of, like, the world is full of crushing and overwhelming injustices and you don't get to sit down. You don't do what the Tenardiers do and say, you know, it's a world where the dog eats the dog and rip fillings out of dead students' teeth and then <laughs> and then go dance at the ball. Sorry, that's how things end for the Tenardiers. <laughs> um, they're fine. <laughs> they do great. They're a blast. But, like, maybe you watch that and are like, no, no. Our job is to, like, move through the world with love and care and do our best to shift the scale a little bit. And, like, is it possible for that to be something that a lot of us got out of a musical that was simultaneously, like, a pretty massive corporate undertaking? I live by an outdoor mall and it. I earnestly love it. It is obviously meant for shopping and taking people's money, but it is it's like a, a, a walking area with a fountain that there's all, a lot of people gathering in. So I'm going like, I can't really control this. This is where like American gathering places are, but there's something accidentally human that you've done here. And I think I can enjoy the accident because it's all like we get. Yeah. Yeah, that's so beautiful. <laughs> Something accidentally human. <laughs> it's almost like it takes more than one go at a revolution, you know? Yeah. I keep thinking of that image Michel de Sarteau has in his book, The Practice of Everyday Life, where he talks about, like, the field that has the paths that they built, but then there's that that path that's cut horizontally across the field by the places that people have walked and it's like that's kind of what we're all doing right like we don't get to build the world that we want we're just born into the world as it is but we've got this ability to like 
cut these horizontal paths across the way things are. And I, you know, at the end of the day, this is probably why I'm a, a cultural critic as my job. At the end of the day, I have this like wild belief that engaging with art gives us a tool set to do that, that field crossing. Yeah. And, and engaging with art without a, a limited, uh, limited parameters around what counts as art, right? So like, to describe musical theater, to describe a, me a mega musical as art is already itself kind of a kind of a radical act. Because <laughs> like my, the core of its relationship with me is like me pretending to be a French cop in my living room to my mom. Like that's what <laughs> the my relationship to it is. And I because I wasn't in the context when it was created and when it had an agenda. I just found it on the side of the road and made it mine yeah yeah and pretending to be a french cop somehow didn't turn you into a person who loves cops yeah Isn't that neat? the opposite huh <laughs> <laughs> i played the character and i got in there and i really <laughs> i realized he wasn't great something does not compute <laughs> yeah and now you hate the french that is true tell everyone <laughs> Material Girls is a Witch Please production and distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca. Also on the website, you can find our newsletter. Also, you might notice that we are doing some behind-the-scenes, behind-the-episode research deep dives. Those are part of our newsletter. You can sign up for that on our website. You can also find transcripts. You can find merch. We have so much good merch and there's always new stuff in the works. Uh, we have reading lists and most importantly, you can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash oh, please. We have so much good, good, good solid gold content on there and uh, your financial support means everything to us. So those are my plugs. Aaron, do you have some plugs? Where can people find you? I have two podcasts that I'm a main cast member of. Hey Riddle Riddle. Uh, they're both HeadGum podcasts, so you can find it at HeadGum or anywhere you find podcasts. Hey Riddle Riddle, which is a riddle podcast, uh, vaguely, <laughs> um, where it, me and two other comedians uh, talk about riddles, solve riddles, do some improv. And then my newer podcast is called Sitcom D&D, &D, and it's standalone episodes of D&D &D set in a sitcom world. And those are both on HeadGum. And I'm very proud of both. So if you want to check them out, we'd love to have you. I'm really excited to listen to sitcom d and I am just busy listening to every episode of Hey Riddle Riddle. And I told you I'm going to get you um, out of there. I'm not letting you. <laughs> I'm not letting you get lost in there. I don't leave me. <laughs> no. Save yourself. <laughs> I am going to plug uh, Hey Riddle Riddle, which I love, and also our social media. We are on Instagram and some other social media platforms, I guess, at a witch, please. <laughs> one might be called X, one might be called Threads. I don't know. I don't go there anymore. But we are there. We're on TikTok at a witch, please pod. You should come hang out with us there. Gabby is making cool content for the youth. I also want to plug our theme song, Shopping Mall, which is by Auto Syndicate. You can find them on Bandcamp. You should listen to the other song on that album. It's called Bongo Dance. It's got a music video. It 
it rules. And I want to plug, by which I mean thank everyone on the Witch Please Productions team, including our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix, our sound engineer, Eric Magnus, and our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude this fortnight goes out to Geneva L., Emma L., Jenny L., are you all related? Anna J., Laura V., Veronica, Kimberly, Ruth Ann P., Micheline M., and Jane S. Great names. All great names. All great names. Really into Ruth Ann. Just powerful. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then... Later, Javert haters. Woo! 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 Woo!